And we are live. You're watching Fantastic Hi, Fiction with KGB. Hello, everybody. Tonight's guests are Rebecca Rowanhorse and Angela Slater. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're, we're a little early. We always start a little early to let everyone filter into the bar and uh, hang out. And we'll probably start around 10 after or so. So uh, welcome, Rebecca. Welcome, Angela. And uh, thanks, welcome, everyone, for joining us. Um, so, so Angela, where are you located now? You're in? Um, I am in Brisbane, Australia, and we're okay. starting, you know, what passes as a winter for here. So when it hits okay. 20 degrees, we're all starting to look for our Ugg boots, um, particularly Queenslanders, because this is not our natural temperature. So <laughs> right. And it's early there, right? You said it's about 9 a.m. there, or what time? Uh, is it? Yeah, it's on 9, yeah. which again is particularly early for a rider. So Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Rebecca, where are you uh, joining us from? Uh, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay, cool. Hi, Amy. And just a couple hours earlier, earlier over there, right? So, yeah. what are you? Th you're three hours or two? I always forget. Yeah. Santa Fe, two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Amy. Hi, Carol. Thanks for joining us. Um, yeah, it was really hot in New York today. It was like 88. Super hot. <sighs> Oh. See, we have spring for two days, and then it turns into summer. Yeah. Oh, that's miserable. I missed, I, I enjoyed the spring yesterday and the day before. I didn't go out at all today. Not because it was that hot. I just didn't get around. I had other things to do. Hi, oh. Lisanne. Hi, Lisanne. It's nice here. It's like, well, for me, it's nice. It's like 60 and rainy and overcast. We got snow on the mountains, like, two days ago. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Awesome. Mother yeah, TV, Ellen. <laughs> Live, Ellen is TV, Ellen. What, I, what, I, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> does she, Amy? Do you put Ellen on the on your big screen TV or something? Yeah. It must be weird. <laughs> if so. But yeah, this so this is our fifteenth uh, live stream. Mm -hmm. uh, virtual KGB since you know the pandemic, um, yeah, fifteen months and uh, October we're finally going back to in person. Uh, it seems yeah, Amy says twenty five inch TV. Yeah, okay. yeah, it seems like you know they just list, lifted the mask mandate in New York today, so um, we you know October seems pretty safe right now for for yeah. in person events. Uh, you know we'll see, we'll play it by ear, but. It's you know it's it's uh, it's you know the one good thing about the uh, all this horribleness is that we're we're able to get um, people from all over the world yeah. to join us who probably we didn't realize that until halfway through we already had scheduled you know and then we suddenly I suddenly realized wait a minute let's get people from around the world we can do yeah. that for the next few months so yeah. yeah will you um will you keep broadcasting when you're back in the bar. Well, we're trying to figure out a way to do that. Yeah, so I don't think I'm gonna, I don't think we're gonna do it live because there's there's issues with, you know, we take a break and then is the camera gonna be rolling? And then, you know, people are talking and gossiping and it's like, wait a minute, there's a camera here recording everything. And I don't think that's appropriate. <laughs> so probably what we'll do is- um, Hi, Andreas. And when we already do, hi, Andreas from Germany. What we already do is uh, a podcast. We were doing a podcast anyway, just the audio only. Mm -hmm. So what I what we might do is record the video and just have like on the YouTube, we'll just do like the readings 
you know, with an intro and outro recorded. So like maybe a day or two after like what we do now, um, unfortunately it won't be live. But we do actually, the, the one of the good things about this, and we have to figure out um, how we're gonna do it live is we started doing a Q and A. Like we never really did a Q and A in person. Mm-hmm, and it's um, been fun. Yeah, and like I think a lot of the best discussions happened you know, after the readings, when we're doing the Q and A and then the authors start talking to each other and then we all, it's just like, it's, I don't know. I, I find that the- It's really good. Really. Well, we really have to figure out how we can do it in person. Hi, Donald from San Jose. You control it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can, something that they, you know, they used to do at the Queensland Writers' Centre was ahead of time, have people send in their questions so that they could, you know, then have a moderator ask them and filter them out. So yeah. we uh, that might be the best way to do yeah. it. And the things that aren't actually a question but a statement. So <laughs> the um the right. bane of the con. So yeah, that's one that's one way to go. Yeah. I mean how, we'd have to do it like at the beginning of the before we start, kind of in the yeah. and say if people have questions, write them down and pass them on. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. That's one option. Um I mean the bar is not that big, I and mean, people could shout them, and we could. No, you know what? No, you don't do that. Well, no, I don't. Want to. First of all, and then also, you, everyone's going to talk over everyone else, and you know what? If we don't want to take a question, we don't like it. No, you know. If we don't like the question, you mean? yeah. Oh, I see. You don't want people shouting it out, and you know, and they said they'll shadow it over each other. It's like not one person at a time. That's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just—they're not prepared. They won't think about it. They need to think about the question in advance. Basically, <laughs> the only thing I, the only thing I can think of is like, what if, you know, someone has a great reading and someone's really engaged with the story and wants to has questions about it. And um, well, at the afterwards we can do that. I mean, you know that. I mean, who? No, no, no. What I mean is, I don't know how many questions we'll get to begin with. Right yeah. now, we don't. Yeah, sure. If we only get a couple of questions, yeah, we can take questions from the audience. You know, who have people who haven't asked questions yet. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. We'll have to figure it out. Yes, Amy, it is a serious haircut. Hi, Joseph. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I'm getting my haircut next week. I got it short for the summer. I was just getting too long. My hair has become unwieldy. It's like it's like shapeless. It's I have barrettes in it. It's like I can't stand it. I got it cut, recolored a week and a half ago, but you can hardly see the purple. Well, in the light, you can. Yeah, and I think it's just the lighting. Yeah. In the sunshine, but in any case, the shape is a mess. <laughs> I hate it. Uh, I've been cutting mine for a year and a half now, and it's not going well. So, well, yeah, I mean, I cut the bangs, and then the bangs have suddenly become short and won't get long again. I mean, they just won't. Well, in protest, they, they want to be short. And what I did do is I chopped here and chopped here at one point when there's, but you know, so it's a whole. The back is not. It's a mess. <laughs> My hair comes going to see and says, I'm going to say, what did you do to your hair? <laughs> I said, oh, I chopped a little off here and there. <laughs> the last six months. <laughs> Hi, John. Yes, Ellen Hi, does look fantastic. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, Joseph says he went to work in New York City. Oh. The first time in 14 months yesterday. It was a bit surreal. Yeah, we oh. um, hung out with our neighbors recently in their apartment for the first time in over a year and that was very strange um yeah and actually you know ellen and i and a couple of people went to dinner 
And that was really the first time I, I was out with friends. I mean, mm -hmm. other than like my wife and I went out a couple of times, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we went to the, um, Randy Dorn organized a trip to um, Beetle House, which was, I had no idea until it got there that it was Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> It was in East Fifth Street or Sixth Street, and it's like I knew we were in trouble when we were waiting outside, and Beetlejuice started coming up to us and screaming. And I, that's when I knew that oh shit, this is it's Beetlejuice. It's like oh no, and that's what it was inside. It was very loud. It was yeah. it was very loud. Yeah, we saw the Broadway show. Um, I love the movie, but I don't want to live it. Thank you. Yeah, the Broadway show was. I think that was the last show i saw before the we saw before the pandemic uh -huh. um, yeah mm. so yeah so i did see a bunch of people then that was a few weeks ago and last night yesterday the first one of the few people um came over to my house to socialize although i had a friend over about a week ago who came from connecticut and came over to my house not many people have seen my new apartment in person yet yes and they're they're all impressed i assume Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Matt helped me move, so he's seen it. But he didn't. And he, you came. Actually, he was there. Recently. I was. I've been there a few times. Yeah, and you got here after I with the desk, so you saw. I saw the, the desk. Couch. I haven't been there since. You got the couch. couch. Yeah, I got a no. couch. A love seat. Hi, Gay. Hi, Misty. Hi, my mom was asking me what that thing is on the couch because I talk to my mom every day virtually. <laughs> it's a flat cat. <laughs> oh, that sounds like the title of a horror story. The thing. Oh, I know. And she asked me if someone made it by hand. I said, I don't know. I got it at an antique store, but it's a flat cat. It's a flat I cat. It. Yes. It's definitely flat. It's a flat cat. It's really mm -hmm. cute. I think. <laughs> One of my many oddities. Yeah. <laughs> I've been uh, if you're just joining us. It's really annoying because I'm not a hoarder. I'm a collector. There's a big difference. Collector. Okay. <laughs> Uh, fantastic fiction at KGB, uh, hosted by myself and Ellen Datlow on the third Wednesday of every month. Uh, we've been doing it for 15 months virtually. Uh, in October, we're going back to the KGB bar. They're currently open now, um, but we're not going to be going back there until October. Right. Uh, so we're um, Michael DeLuca is one of our readers. And a couple, we have uh, two other people we're considering for that, and I think people will be really excited. Uh, but we can't name them yet because they haven't confirmed. But I think um, there'll be a big draw for an in-person event. Should I mention? I can mention the others, the people we have coming up. Who we do have? Yeah. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. I can't read this. Oh, now I need the light. <laughs> June sixteenth, Nadja Balkin and Shannon McGuire. July twenty-first, we have Kim Stanley Robinson and Nancy Cress. August 18th, A.C. Wise and Karen Lord. September 15th, we have Marie. I don't know. Is it Marie or Marie? Ness. I think it's Marie. Marie. I think it may be Marie. But Marie? Marie. Okay, we'll ask. Anyway, yeah. And, um, and Ellen Clagis. So, yeah. About halfway through, we had scheduled. I was telling um, Rebecca and Angela that initially we had scheduled people virtually and then suddenly I we realized like halfway through that wait a minute we have the opportunity to get people from all over the world for a few months let's do it so the first part of the pandemic we had people scheduled already and we did you know they were more local and then now we've been in the last several months we've gotten people from all over the world um to read uh oh you can hear my cat whining that's Jack <laughs> he's whining he just got fed but it's not enough 
including Angela and Rebecca who are joining yeah, us. Um, right. Angela is from Brisbane and Rebecca is from Santa Fe. And these are their books. So uh, take a look at the um, Jack, shut up. In the, the YouTube uh, info below, the bottom of the screen, you'll see uh, links to get their books. Um, they're going to be uh, reading for us tonight, which we're super excited. Uh, it's about 10 after. What do you say? You want to get started, you think? Or? Why don't we wait another five minutes? Okay. <laughs> All right. Sure. Not in a rush. I, I don't know. I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, on your book, Beck. I'm sorry? Rebecca. I was just saying to Rebecca that the cover of your book is really beautiful. Who yes, did the a, I love that cover. Do you know who oh, designed thank it? you. Do you know who, uh, you know who created the cover or who? Uh, well, John Picasso did the art. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. And then uh, I, I, I don't know who designed that. it, unfortunately. That's, that's in-house folks at uh, Saga Press. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you work with uh, with Joe, with Joe Monty? Yeah, with Joe Monty. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. my editor. Yeah. Great. I love Joe. Good. Yeah. And who's your publisher, Angela, for this book? Um, Titan UK, actually. Oh. So Kath Tretchman's my um my editor there, and this is my first book for them. So it's actually so who's your editor there? Who? Uh, Kath Tretchman. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's been nice. It's been a really nice experience just to sort of, you know, dealing with the editors and <clears throat> the copy editors and then the proofreaders and and enjoyable you know as opposed to someone sort of trying to move your commas my editor there is uh, george sanderson all oh, right yeah yeah, yeah I know and george. this is where i will announce that there will be uh, you know i have a book coming out from them um when things get dark new uh, stories inspired by shirley jackson from Titan, and we're going to be doing, and we're setting up a reading, a special reading aside from our regular date of KGB. It'll be in September. I'm not sure what date yet exactly, and we'll have like, um, well, we hope to get ten, but we realize that I don't know ten, if ten will fit on Streamyard. But we're having at least six readers. Max twelve, book. Max huh? twelve, so they say. Well, hopefully it'll be fine. But you yeah. know, we have I've a never, bunch. Never of had that many. We have um, Ke uh, Kelly Link is going to try to do it if she's not teaching, and um, Josh Mallinman if he's not directing, <laughs> you know, and other people. I mean, I've got a bunch of people. Once we get the date set, I'll let we'll let people know. But again, that's not going to that'll be September, but not our regular KGB date. Our regular KGB in September is that's when we have Mari Ness and Ellen Clagis. So, do you want to start now? Should we start? Okay. Uh, yeah, so um, if you're just tuning in, this is the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series, uh, hosted by Ellen Datlow and myself, Matthew Kressel. Tonight's guests are Rebecca Rowanhorse and Angela Slater. And um, so the series itself um, has been going since the late 90s. Um, it started off as trying to bring together mainstream literature and spec fic and now we're pretty much mostly spec fic, although we do have some people that uh, do, do the slide. <laughs> yeah, the three slide in literature and genre. But um, yeah, so so um, we normally do the reading at the KGB bar in the um, East Lower in the East Village of Manhattan, and um, it's a great bar, KGB bar, uh, one of the best 
literary venues in New York City, according to New York Times. And um, yeah, so like obviously everything was shut down in the pandemic and um, we just want to uh, support them. So they're open now, but I think with limited capacity, but um, if you can, there's a little link at the bottom. You can support the bar if you want to throw them like a couple dollars, like the cost of a drink, soft or hard, right? Just to, to help them out, um, keep them going. They actually had a, a break in a few, about like a month or two ago. Um, someone broke in. And um, if you've never been to the bar, like you can kind of see it in the background. I'll show up, let's see if I can throw up a picture here. So this is just the back of the bar, um, but it's like filled with Soviet era um, paraphernalia and, and not just like, you know, replicas, actual like Soviet era things. And over the years, like people have stolen stuff, right? But someone broke in and stole, I think they stole that um, Lenin statue that's like right on the bar there. Oh no. Yeah, I, I, I didn't quite, I think that's what Lori was suggesting, but um, but anyway, they broke the door down and they they busted a bunch of stuff. So so um, if you can if you can help them out, um, they they did do a separate GoFundMe I think for that. But uh, the money goes towards the bar and supporting the bartenders. And then the uh, the other thing too is that we um, the series itself uh, we it, it costs a little bit to run each month. Uh, you know this hosting service that we use. Um, we do give the authors. Um, a, a, a small stipend. Um, we um, when we're live, when we're in person, we take them out to dinner. We take them out to dinner. We also um, have been giving them um, giving money to the KGB bar to support them as well. So if you want to help us out with a little bit, um, you know, the the links below, um, if you can. And uh, some people have been very generous in supporting us already, and we want to thank uh, thank. Uh, you as well. You know who you are. But uh, yeah, so um, thank you for everyone who supported us so far. And um, yeah, so we're probably going to go back to in-person readings on in October. Um, so our first reader tonight is Angela Slater. Uh, Angela Slater is a multi-award winning Australian writer of dark fantasy and horror. Her latest publications are the gothic fairy tale novel all the Murmuring Bones from Titan, and the Mosaic Collection, The Tallow Wife, and other tales from Tartarus Press. She has a PhD, teaches for the Australian Writers' Center, and is trying to finish a new Gothic novel, Moorwood. Here's Angela. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, guys. Um, so the book is sort of about uh, Mirana O'Malley, who is a member of a once powerful family, um, but they are now very decayed. Um, and in Chapter 3, we've just had the um, funeral for her grandfather, O'Sheen, and she is now sitting in the library with her grandmother, Aoife, um, talking about what future they might have. Um, and Mirren's parents are apparently dead <clears throat> and she's been brought up by the grandparents. The library has a high ceiling, once painted with scenes of our maritime glory, but largely the art is obscured by cobwebs and smoke grime and has been for as long as I can remember. A face peeks through here and there, a limb, a roiling cloud, a ship's tail, a ship's sail, a sea monster's tail, but mostly what's up there is just to the imagination. When I was small, I wouldn't look lest I conjure a nightmare. 
Back then, I thought there couldn't be worse things than bad dreams. Three of the walls are covered by overflowing bookshelves, and the fourth is mostly window, swathed with red curtains to keep the night and the worst of the cold at bay. Aoife's in an embroidered housecoat of the deepest maroon, hair piled high, silk and silver, no trace of the darkness of her youth. There's a glass of, whis of winter lemon whiskey by her elbow, and she's seated in one of the threadbare wingback chairs, staring into the flames of the fire. Not long ago, she gave a deep sigh that I recognised as a letting go, a signal that from here we move forward, but to where? I'm still in my morning gown. I spent the afternoon farewelling guests, then helping Maura clean up the mess because Aidan took his borrowed maids home with him. Afterwards, <clears throat> we packed three baskets with as many leftovers as possible, and I walked to the three tenanted cottages to deliver them. There's more food than we can get through, and someone at least should benefit somehow from Oshin's passing. The Kellys and the Burns were grateful. The widow Amara accepted what I brought, but gave me the same look she always does, and I hurried away, just as I always do. Now I go to one of the shelves and take a book down from its place, nested between family histories and tomes of maritime law that my grandfather loved more than anything of flesh and blood. There are many volumes with the golden M on their spine that denotes Mercianus. Mercianus is little known law, Mercianus is mythical creatures, Mercianus is strange places. There's even a Mercianus magica, but it's an incomplete volume, the true one having been lost centuries ago. But the one I take down is different. It's heavy in my arms and I hold it almost like a shield as I approach Aoife. My fingers trace the embossing on the cover, no longer easily visible. In the front, I know, there are missing pages. Nothing left there but the tiny jagged shreds of paper like the edges of butterfly wings. It's always been that way, and Aoife claims not to know what was there. That the story, that very first story, was missing even when she was a girl, and no memory of it has been kept. Will you read to me? I ask without much hope. For I'm 18 and Grandma's not read, read to me for the longest time. Maura, to whom I'd run for comfort as a child, never read me anything, but used to tell fairy tales. Her sing-song recountings of children taken away to hidden places, of women turned into birds and bugs, of soul clocks and dark magic, of boys who sometimes went on two legs, sometimes on four, of girls who changed their faces, grew horns and danced away from their old lives, of brides stolen by robber barons and heroes who were laid low by a woman's curse. And she told me, too, of other places, Lodellin and Bitterwood, Tintin and Bellsholm, and stranger places like Calder in the Darklands where the leech lords reign. Aoife, when she was in the mood, would read from the book wherein generations of our kin have written tales that might be lies, might be true. Scribbled in different hands, some harder to decipher than others, but all ones that, as a child, I took as gospel. Perhaps, too, I remember my own mother reading to me from the black-covered volume, the pages yellowed, discoloured with ink and age, with the fingerprints of the dead and tiny drawings to enliven or mar the margins. Perhaps I remember a voice sweeter than Aoife's, gentler and more like to laugh than not, whose tellings were less frightening. But perhaps, I imagine it, perhaps as old as merely a thought I once had and will never be anything else. But perhaps, just perhaps, my mother's voice left a trace in my dreams. There's not even a hint of a memory of my father, Liam. All Aoife's ever said about him was he was unsuitable, and a few other words besides, none of them complimentary. 
Other families might have stories of curses, cold lads and white ladies, but we have old gods, merfolk and monsters. I never doubted when I was little that these stories were true. Now, lesser child, I'm not so sure. But this night, for whatever reason, I need to hear such tales again. And for whatever reason, grandmother is feeling generous and she nods. I place the book in her lap. The soaring points of her chair look like a throne with the wings of a bat. I curl on the green chaise long across from her, prop my head on a cushion and feel the warmth of the fire. It'll be too warm by the time the night is done, but I don't care. I don't ask for a particular recounting. It's the telling that matters. For the moment, there is peace. And Aoife begins <clears throat> in a voice that sounds only a little like an old woman's to read something I've not heard for many a year. Three children there were in the house. The firstborn, a girl to inherit. The middle, a boy for the church. And the last, another girl. And a grief it would be to her mother if she fulfilled her purpose. The family had argued it back and forth, but the order must be respected. They did not get to pick and choose, the children's great-grandfather reminded. There was nothing to be done about it. The tithe had to be paid whether they wished it or not. And so the children's mother lowered her eyes and bowed her head. She sat in the nursery day and night, held the baby as if to take in all the moments with her that she could. When the rest of the family stopped watching her with suspicion, when she felt herself free of their gaze, for who among them would go against the patriarch? When women ruled the O'Malley's, there was more give and take, a greater flexibility with rules and boundaries, but the great-grandfather's tenure had seen a tightening of the reins that held his women in check. Now it seemed he'd never die, and those of his own blood felt themselves hoping for his demise. And his granddaughter, the mother of the babe in question, was tired, tired of her bent back and bent knee, of giving way in all matters large and small, and without ever really knowing it, or when it happened, rebellion flared in her. And so the day before she was to say goodbye to her littlest, she sent the oldest and the middlest, middlest to the sea. Take the path, she said, down to the shingle. Be careful not to slip. There's a cave at the far side of the cove. You'll love to see it. Love to play there. Perhaps find treasure, my sweets. She wrapped them up warmly, for the day was grey and cold. The eldest, Ashlyn, knew better than to question her mother, yet her excitement was tempered by some instinct. The boy, Connor, was more enthusiastic than his sister, not so wary, and the girl said nothing to dampen his spirits. She knew this excursion was important from the tension in her mother's body, from the way her eyes were so dark and hard, the way her lips pressed into whiteness. Ashlyn nodded and took her brother's hand. But don't, their mother said as she adjusted the silver bell necklace around her oldest child's throat, let anyone see you. Let's make it a game. How clever can you be? How quiet and sly, my little mice. So Gronya sent those children, she did, down to the pebbled beach. She sent them by the secret ways that all the youngsters of the house knew, but the adults tended to forget. The long dark corridors were known but the servants went, and only then, rarely. They scampered through galleries inhabited by nothing but gillings, for their home had always been made larger than it needed to be. Extensions created for prestige and to excite envy rather than to house any more bodies. They passed by family portraits whose storm black eyes watched them go, eyebrows seemingly on the verge of lifting. Past weapons that had gathered dust and rust, not taken from walls in anger for years and years. Past silver vases, 
and busts on pedestals, past tapestries heavy and rich, depicting scenes of the family's history, with sights of the sea, always the sea, and ships upon it, the very things that helped make the O'Malley fortunes. They sneaked past the library door, past the chair where their great-grandfather spent his days dozing when he wasn't making pronouncements about fates, past the office in which their father and his brothers spent their days counting and recounting the gold and silver brought in by the O'Malley Mercantile Empire planning and plotting and strategizing to make more and more and more. Past the solar, where the great-grandmother, grandmother and aunts spent their days in embroidery and schemes, as women will when forced to sit idly by. It was only when <clears throat> they moved through the great subterranean kitchens that the children's stealth came astray. A single scullion caught sight of them, a girl thin and curious, she followed. At a distance she followed, but follow she did, through the pottager and then the gardens proper, past trees and shrubs, flower beds, past wells ornamental and true, past the folly built only last year to look like a small ship because the great-grandfather had an obsession with such things. She was cold for she'd not thought to put on a coat, but still she followed, lips taking on a bluish, on a bluish tinge, <clears throat> fingers turning numb, so she had to rub them against each other and bury them in her armpits to keep them from cramping entirely. She followed them as they came to the cliff edge, to the spot where the switchback path began. O'Malley children had no fear of rain or grey skies, and no fear of the sea either, for they learned to swim almost before they could walk. But they were careful on land, found it somehow treacherous, the way it sometimes gave way without warning when it promised such solidity. So the children were wary as they took the path down to the pebble-strewn cove. <clears throat> But when they reached the beach, their steps weren't sure once again. Closer to the water, they were more certain. Behind them, the maid struggled, trying hard not to trip, to make any sound that might alert her quarry. By the time that time, they were nearer to their objective and focused utterly on that. They came at last, did the children, to the sea cave, cut deep into layers of dark basalt. The tide was out, for Grania had paid attention to the hour when she sent her children away. But the, attention, the entrance was so small, hardly more than a gap in the rock, as if a mighty hand had pulled the stone up in a curve as easily as a drape of fabric. Ashland got down on her knees, and after the smallest hesitation, it wasn't fear, no, you couldn't call it fear, more a considered caution. She crawled inside, followed swiftly by her brother, who suffered no such qualms. And the maid, wait, maid waited, not daring to pursue, feeling that somehow she'd made an ill choice in giving in to her curiosity. It was dark, the space they squirmed through, damp and close and smelling of dead things the sea had claimed and wouldn't let go. Just when it seemed they'd crawl forever, when Ashland was sure the darkness would suffocate them, a weak gleam showed up, up ahead and a voice trickled through to them. A voice so sweet that it drew them on made Ashland forget she'd ever thought about trying to turn back. Surely there was treasure here, just as their mother had promised. When Ashlyn and Connor could stand again, they found themselves in a cave most assuredly, although they couldn't say how far they'd gone. Ashlyn had the sense that the path had begun to slope down at some point. The area into which they stepped was large, large as the formal dining room at the manor, twice over, two-thirds filled with black water, the other third a sandy bottom so soft their boots sunk, sank. The only source of light was the algae growing on the walls, which glowed a blue-green, made their faces look sickly, and showed the creature that still sang as it lay in the shadows, in the shallows, part in and part out of the liquid obsidian. 
The woman's bottom half couldn't be seen, but Ashland sensed movement in the water. A shift of the fluid caused by the press of something powerful, teasingly silver like a hint or a taste of truth. The creature, woman surely, for it was broad shoulders, heavy breasted, with long ropes of sable hair with pearls braided into them. But Ashland couldn't tell, quell the suspicion that the woman, thing, was much bigger than any person she'd ever seen, even amongst her tall family. The mouth was wide and filled with sharp teeth, the nose a little flat, the nostrils a little high, the eyes big and black with no white at all. But she clearly saw the children, for she smiled with that wide mouth and beckoned them closer. It, she, stopped singing, and the sweet echoes dropped from the ceiling so high it was lost in shadows, dropped and dripped and trickled down to make ripples on the surface of the pond. Ashland thought she'd never seen anything stranger or more beautiful, but she stayed where she was, the silver bell of her necklace seeming to vibrate against her skin. Grania knew the child was cautious. Connor, who knew what the boy thought? He took, steps, he took the steps needed to bring him within the creature's reach. The myrrh didn't seem to look at the boy, but kept her eyes on Ashlyn, and the girl saw there, or thought she did, something cold and clever, almost admiring with a lick of contempt. Admiration, for the girl was smart enough to stay back. Contempt, for the girl said nothing to keep her brother safely with her. The creature's arms were scaled, Ashlyn noticed that then, and their reach was long as it grasped Connor and drew him in. The nails were more than nails, they were claws, and the thing had no care for keeping the boy calm. The talons dug in further and further, so fast Connor barely thought to scream for a moment, and then he did, and when he did, it seemed he'd never stop. The walls that had rung so recently with a siren's song now echoed with Connor's last noises. Ashlyn, unfrozen so fast, dropped to her knees and scuttled to the tunnel, which was wetter as the tide had become to come in, steeper than it had seemed going down. As she crawled, rivulets of water poured towards her as she left the strange light of the sea cave behind and wiggled in a panic towards the tiny speck of sunlight above. And that's the finish of it. None of the tales in this book end with the words, happily ever after. Is it true, Grandmother? Aoife smiles and her face transforms, though I don't know whether it's for better or worse, but she's more beautiful, younger when she smiles, than I must say. Is it true, Grandmother, the story are any of them? She shrugs, does Aoife. You know there was an Ashland once. I know where Ashland's portrait is in the main gallery upstairs. Even in her middle years, she looks like me. The silver bell's necklace hangs pendant, silver bell pendant hangs around her neck. Or we all look like her, I suppose. And she in turn looked like all those who went before with their dark hair, darker eyes and strangely luminous skin, as if the moon lives just a little within us. I know there's no image of her brother Connor there, and though there's a headstone for him at the south wall of the chapel, I'm willing to bet there are no bones sleeping behind it. But Connor should have lived, and the baby... There's a painting of her too, that younger sister, Roisin. She's 18 there, wearing a nun's habit. No one but no Mally knows that she should never have been named, for she was meant to belong to the sea. And it's harder to lose something once you've called it, owned it, named it. Her birth shouldn't have even been recorded because she had another purpose. I also know that there's no portrait of my own mother, for Isolde had somehow offended her parents before her death. Maura and Malachi have both told me that I look like her, but I often wonder. What of the maid, Grandma? The, scull the scullion. She disappears from the tale. People disappear all the time. 
Perhaps she went away with the fairies. Eva grins more broadly, but her gaze is cold, her tone too. Don't be such a child, Mirren. You know, you should be beyond such things, such stories. Then why do you keep the book, Grandmother, I ask, and her hands with their long fingers, the blue tracery of veins, convulse around the cover before she can stop herself. Stories are history, whether, whether they're true or not, she says, and there's that beauty again, and I'm in awe at how she once looked. No wonder that neither Silas nor half the men in Breakwater could say no to her. There's a hint that, beneath her skin, however, she was never very kind. I know that, she raised me. I wonder, as I have always done, whether she was kind of my kinder to my mother when his old was small. I do love my grandmother, not simply from duty, but Aoife O'Malley, proper O'Malley, the daughter of first cousins married to a first cousin, has never been what you've called kindly. Even as she's grown older, there's been no mellowing and only the slightest slowing of her movements. She's smart, is Aoife, but not very patient. So the times when she's found me especially challenging, I've paid for it when her temper's snapped. What did you discuss with cousin Aidan this afternoon? I ask at last. She shrugs dismissively. But we'll go and visit him in a few days when the will is read. Perhaps we'll stay overnight rather than race against the dark to get back here. It'll be nice, won't it, to have a sojourn in town? Nice perhaps if you've any money to spend on amusements, on a fancy meal or a scandalous show. Perhaps she's hoping Aidan will open the mouth of his purse out of pity. But Aoife's never been a fool or one to believe in fairy promises. Go to, Mir go to bed, Mirren. It's been a long day. In my bedroom, with its almost empty armoires, writing desk, Duchess with an age-pocked mirror, canopy bed and the tiny bathing corner, I undress. I take off the corset and examine the impressions the whalebone has made on my torso. I dip my fingers into the furrows in the flesh then move them until I can find the scar just above my right hip. There are other scars, but I don't touch them, don't seek them out. Raised, still pinkish despite the years. It's a brand, really, though the finer details have been lost in the healing. A Janus-faced mermaid with two tails. The same figure that adorns the family crest. The same image left, as, left only as an embossed impression on the cover of our book of terrible tales since the silver foil is long gone. And I dream that night about mothers who choose between their children, who decide which one is loved less and send them into the void. Thank you. Wow. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was really good. So, uh, it's good to see no one asleep. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get the claps coming in a second because there's a little bit of delay in the comments. It's not crickets, don't worry. <laughs> there it goes. There it goes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome, awesome. So uh, we're going to um, take a, a short break, like five minutes max, mm -hmm. and then we're going to come back with Rebecca Rowanhorse. So... Uh, so don't go off and get a drink or go to the bathroom or whatever or yell at your cat. Yeah. <laughs> you could yell at your cat anyway, just not during the reading. Right. <laughs> All right. We'll five back. minutes. Back Thank in you. five.
All right. Maybe we'll Hi. just give it a couple more minutes just because I yeah. did some five. It's only been like three or four. I did everything I needed to do. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, I have to shut off the water and the Sophie will only drink water from the from the water faucet in the back. From the tap? Yeah. Yeah. Why shut it sophisticated cat. Yeah. <laughs> If only she could turn it off when she was done. Right. You Not get one of those little cat lovers that she can press. <laughs> oh, yes. Jack has not made an appearance yet, but he might. I haven't used my banner tonight. I know. We don't need to yet. Save it. There it is. <laughs> what is your banner? <laughs> Jack the Jerk. I'll just come up and, what is so and attack <laughs> Ellen for no reason. But he can't. He, I don't have arm an armchair anymore. He can't sit on my armchair, and he won't. He won't jump on my lap. So he'll just start scratching the couch or something horrible. <laughs> oh man! Should we store it? Yeah. yeah. What are you doing? Hey. <laughs> Banner. <laughs> uh, Sophie, do we need another banner for Sophie? I don't know if it's Sophie or Jack. What, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're doing. All right. All right. <clears throat> anyway, Rebecca Roanhorse is a New York Times bestseller and an award-winning speculative fiction writer. Her latest novel, Black Sun, was recently nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Novel of 2020. She has short fiction published in Apex Magazine, Uncanny, and multiple anthologies. She has also written for Star Wars, Marvel, and for TV. She lives in northern New Mexico. Please welcome Rebecca Roanhorse. Hi, everyone. Thanks for showing up. Um, so I'm going to read two uh, separate uh, excerpts from short fiction for you tonight. Uh, rather than the novel. And it just works a little better for me. Um, I'm trying to decide what to read. I think I'm going to read you first uh, from New Sons. Uh, this is an anthology of original speculative fiction by people of color, edited by Nisi Shaw. Uh, and I'm going to read you an excerpt from my piece in this uh, called Harvest. And Harvest is a retelling uh, of the Dear Woman story, or a reimagining, I guess, of Dear Woman. And if you're not familiar with Dear Woman, uh, she is um, a, a character uh, mostly found in um, um, woodland tribes. She's a beautiful woman that often comes to the dance in a, in a long, luxurious uh, skirt that covers her uh, hoofed feet. And she seduces away uh, those who are prone to seduction. <laughs> and so uh, I had reimagined Dear Woman um, for another uh, project that was supposed to be sort of a feminist reimagining of her. And that's where this story comes from. Oh, and I have to tell you, so when Nisi sent out the call for this story, she said, send me your sort of most unpublishable story, the one you think is like too weird that people won't want. And I know probably with this crowd, there's no such thing. Uh, but for me, I was like, ah, well, this is it. Harvest. Never fall in love with a dear woman. Dear women are wild and without reason. Their lips are soft as even song. Their skin dark as the mysteries of a moonless forest. A dear woman will make you do terrible things for a chance to dip your fingers inside her. 
to have her taste linger on your tongue. You will weep before it is over, the cries of one who has no relatives, but you will do whatever she asks. Tansy, Tansy, my lover whispers my name. Is it time to harvest the hearts? The horror of her question is always fresh, always a shock. I suppose in the daylight hours when she is not here, I'm able to tell myself that it never happened, that her words are often are other than what I know them to be. As long as I don't look at what we keep in the old cooler on the fire escape, as long as I ignore her bloody breath, the hand she rests against my cheek is still damp and smells faintly of rot. The air clots my nose with a coppery sweetness that has become familiar. Her eyes meet mine, vast and luminous. They say that if you gaze into someone's eyes, you can see their soul. But my lover has no soul. Her eyes are mirrors, showing me only myself, and I turn away from what I see. I reach for her instead, my hand compelled by something primal. If desire were a thing made physical, it would be the curve of my lover's neck, the slope of her shoulder. It would taste like the salt of her skin. It would sound like the susurrus of her breath. So, of course, I say what I always say every time she asks me to kill for her. Yes. We only need a few more hearts, she says. Two, three, I've lost count. Are you counting? Three. Last week when she asked, it was five. The fifth we harvested on a Monday night in the empty parking lot of a deserted travel stop off I-95. A blonde-haired clerk whose steps were heavy with minimum wage and payday loan debts. Fourth was a gray-eyed mother of two, the backbone of her family. She fought hard, a strong heart, a worthy sacrifice, something to break the best of her people. They were monsters, my lover says to me, and it does no good to have mercy on a monster. They will not have mercy on you. She tucks herself against my ribs and rests her head on my shoulder. The silver moonlight through the open window snags in her hair. The light of distant stars caresses her skin. She tilts her face up for a kiss. I lean in, eager, but she moves away, laughing. She rolls to her feet, drags at my hand. Let's go. I go, stumbling out of bed, barefoot across peeling and cold plastic tiles, ignoring the residue of filth that sticks to my soles. I pull on my jeans and old stained hoodie, grab the black leather roll of chef knives from the console by the door, hesitate at the feel of the leather in my hands, the blades of sharp steel unrevealed. And for a moment, I remember a life before, before I met my lover. Never fall in love with a dear woman. Dear women are cunning and can see the past and the future all at once. Their eyes are deep and still as well water, their legs as long and slender as the high aspens. A dear woman will make you do terrible things for a chance to stroke the back of her knees, to hear her whisper your name. She will promise you home. We did not meet at a chance encounter in a moonlit wood in the way of fairy tales. I did not chase her fleeing shadow through a dappled grove of ancient trees to the banks of an enchanted pool. I was not lured away, as is the way of hunters who have on a solstice eve somehow become the prey themselves. 
I met my lover in a bar on a weekend trip to Manhattan, an impetuous late train from my upstate culinary school down to the city, a solo escape from a mind-numbing week spent on gastronomy etiquette, spirit dulled by the proper way to set at a table, the hand to use for the seafood fork, the ordering of stemware. I am lost in this world, drowning in a sea of their buttery sauces and unfamiliar histories, wishing for something known, something to remind me of home. I overhear a boy in class mention a food truck somewhere on the Lower East Side that serves oven bread and prune pastelitos. It feels like a sign. New York is a big, noisy, foreign place, but I am not afraid of it. It beckons, asking me to let go, to become someone else. I wander, looking fruitlessly for that truck until I hear a deep drum beat, a high wailing through the open door of a corner bar. She is there, wearing white, a dress that leaves her brown shoulders bare, a skirt that gambles lovingly around her long legs to brush the floor. She dances the kind of dance that draws stares, the dance that reminds you of the whirl of the starry heavens, of places that exist far away from concrete canyons. She is graceful and undisciplined all at once, an invitation to question one's life's choices. When she stops, she falls into the high back chair next to me at the bar, laughing and flushed. She ignores the others, men and women, who crowd around her, offering to buy her a drink. She looks at me, and I make the mistake of looking back. We drink San Germain, her neat in a shot glass, because she says it's like a shot of summer straight to the vein. I take mine with gin and ice and lemon and agree. We drink and then we dance until the night moves on without us, until the bartender calls last call. And laughing, dizzy, reckless, we share a nectar-tinged kiss. I should have known then, but in the way of new lust, all I could know was the slip of her hips and the flirt of her long fingers, the flavor of white flowers staining her lips. Now I understand in the way of those doomed that I was being seduced. But like all fools whose desires leave them dashed upon rocks or lost in a fairy's lair, knowledge comes too late for salvation. I never find that food truck that tasted like home. That's all I'm going to read from Harvest. If you want to check it out, it's in New Suns. It's also, you can read it for free uh, on uncanny.com. You would have to search for it, but it is there as a reprint. So now we're just going to shift gears. <laughs> I'm going to do that to you. Uh, I'm going to read um, an excerpt from, oh, let's see. Actually, I'm going to do the other one. Uh, from the Mythic Dream. Uh, and this is a... Um, anthology uh, edited by Dominique Cruzian and Neva Wolf, uh, put out by Saga Press, where we were asked to reinterpret uh, classic myths, uh, or maybe not so classic myths, because I picked a, a Pueblo myth, um, uh, dear, let me see, let me get it right so I don't tell you. So after you hear it, if you're interested, you can go find the original. But it is based on uh, Deer Hunter and White Corn Maiden. Um, and it is called A Brief Lesson in Native American Astronomy. We were going to be stars. That's what you got to understand. 
big fucking stars like Jack and Rose or Mr. and Mrs. Carter, like our faces on every screen, dominating every media feed. Everyone already loved us, wanted to be us, wanted to fuck us. And people like that, people like us, young, rich, famous, we don't just get sick and die. They've got med docs and implants and long life tech that keeps people alive for 150 years now if you can afford it and we could afford it. So how could they let her die? How could I lose my perfect girl? How could they do that to me? I keep the room dark. My agent's been calling, but fuck him, you know? He says I'm missing important appearances, that if I'm not careful, people are going to forget me. Maybe it's time I move on, he says. Find a new girlfriend, someone hot. Be seen with this new hot chick at a big premiere or something. They're launching a new luxury liner at the end of the week, he says. Something that takes you to the edge of the atmosphere and projects your digital image into outer space before hurling you back to the earth. A billion people will see your face shining like an honest-to-God star. You should go, he says. Go to almost space, smile a big almost smile with a new almost girlfriend and make people remember who you are. But who the fuck would want to ride up that? You can't breathe up there. Who wants to go where you can't breathe? My agent convinces the boss lady at Digimagine to come talk to me. She bangs on my door until I think she's going to shatter the glass. The door cost me half my pay on that damn Japanese shampoo commercial where I had to wear that breech cloth and pose in front of a stuffed bison. <laughs> sure, it was humiliating, but I do have really stellar Indian hair. Long, black, and it moves like it's got its own built-in wind machine. And that shampoo company was paying big for a few hours of easy work. Flip, smolder, flip, smolder. It's what I do anyway most of the time, so why not? Can't remember the last time I smiled for the camera. They want stoic, so I give them stoic. Sherry always thought it was funny. We'd laugh about stuff like that all the time. Whatever. Anyway, I don't want some motherfucker breaking my glass door, even if she is a studio head. I let her in because she's holding a little white envelope. I know that envelope, what it holds. That's the only reason I open that door. It's like I can already feel the wet burn on the back of my eyes. One question is, whose memories she's holding? I'm Carol Elder, she says, her bone white pumps click clacking on the hardwoods as she strides through the door. Sorry to hear about Charlene. She turns toward me and thrusts two things into my hands, the white envelope and an old-fashioned business card, her name printed in neat black ink on a white linen card. Our fingers touch briefly, accidentally, and hers are cold. Cherry, I tuck the card in my pocket of, the ba of my bathrobe I'm wearing and take that envelope over to the kitchen island. What? Her name was Cherry. Like the kind you eat? She was sweet. I don't know why I say that, but it feels important. Like she should get her name right and know that she was a decent person. Despite all that other stuff, the rumors, the thing with the Bioware executive, none of that mattered. She was good. She didn't deserve to die. Carol Elder follows me into the kitchen. She watches as I take a knife from the block and slices the envelope open. I catch her eyes roving the room, the overflowing ashtrays, the food cartons, the big engram needle on the coffee table surrounded by pieces of human hair, nails, flecks of skin, all laid out in a row. I swear she shudders. 
Did the doctors figure out what was wrong with her? She asked. Who killed? I mean, why she died? Walked on? She adds hurriedly. I mean, don't your people say walked on? I can almost hear the roar of the Pacific out back. But with the blinds down and the air on, sounds more like traffic on the 405. I don't give a shit either way. Cherry's the one who wanted to live on the beach. Malibu, she said. All the real stars live in Malibu. So we have to, too. Even if the truth is half the stars these days are kids with fancy digital setups in Kansas or big corporate simulations that aren't even fleshies. But Cherry wanted it, so we moved to Malibu. I shake the contents of the white envelope out, a small glass vial marked with the initials C-A, a little red band wound around the cap as a warning that the contents are high potency. Is this, I say, suddenly breathless. We keep some high-grade engrams on all our stars for emergencies. Someone dies mid-production and a vial of quality engrams provides us with enough of the person to project a replica that will get us through filming and retakes, sometimes even a few promo interviews. Not in the flesh, she adds hastily. We're not magicians. The replicant is digital, but it is interactive, and they look as good as the best simulations, but with more personality, closer to the real thing. She smiles briefly. We have some of yours too, you know. It's part of your contract. Did you imagine didn't draw your blood when you signed on just for shits and giggles? I don't think you did, I mutter. Mine's still on the vial in my hand. I'm afraid to ask, but I have to. And this is her? She nods. She was under contract, but she wasn't actively filming anything for Digimagine, so her file scheduled for decommission. She shifts her weight from one foot to the other. The authorities can get excitable if we keep engrams when unnecessary. They usually go to next of kin, but Cherry didn't have any. I thought you might want it, that it might help. She shrugs her shoulders rising under her spotless pale silk suit like she doesn't care either way, just cleaning house, keeping things tidy. My eyes dart to the coffee table, the needle. It's illegal to drop other people's memories directly into your brain, but I've been doing it. It's all I have left of her, squeezing engrams off strands of hair left in her brush, fingernail clippings she liked to pile on the nightstand, sweat stains on the dirty clothes she left behind. It's fucked up. I get it. But she was my perfect girl. And then she died. Two days, Carol repeats. That's all I can give you. Just you and her memories, and then you're back to work, okay? Be grateful I've got this for you at all. Oh, and Mr. Hunter... Des, I know you've been shooting scraps, but this is high-grade stuff. Don't put this directly into your brain. Find a nice VR system and load it up in an experience like a goddamn normal person. Nothing good will come from sharing brain space with a dead person, especially when it's biologicals. Yeah, sure, but I'm already stumbling over to the table, my hand searching for the needle, the vial with her initials whispering my name. Carol opens her mouth as if to protest, but settles for shaking her head disapprovingly. My hand closes around the cap and I twist. It opens and for the first time in days, I smile. I don't even notice when Carol leaves. I wake up the next day on the couch. Sorry, hold on. Someone is uh, sawing things outside my window. <laughs> it's a little distracting. 
I wake up on the couch to someone knocking on my glass door. Cherry? It takes me a minute to remember that it can't be her. My brain comes slouching back into my noggin and I see the engram needle on the table in front of me. Cherry's vial empty beside it. I reach for it, furious, shake it as if that's going to reveal something I can't see with my own eyes. But I'm a greedy bastard and I took it all and she's gone now. My chest hurts like my heart's gonna break in two. I wipe at my leaky eyes and notice my video display is on. It's cycling through pictures, sharp and technicolor. Cherry's audition role, there she is, dressed as a plains Indian maiden, her hair in two braids. Another as a prostitute, her hair in two braids. Another as an alcoholic mother, her hair in two braids. I don't remember turning the display on, but I must have done it after I shot up the engrams, something to enhance the sensories. Looking at her, it's like I can still feel her in my brain. The knock comes again. I twist around to look at the door, but there's no one there. God, am I hearing things too? I'm over here, babe. I yelp at the sound of Cherry's voice coming from the kitchen. What in the entire fuck? But there she is, wearing her favorite shirt, blue jeans snug on her perfect ass. Her dark hair is twined up in a bun on top of her head. She gives me a big smile. Good morning, gorgeous, she says. I thought you were going to sleep forever. Want some coffee? And I'll stop there. So you can read the rest of it and see what happens in the Mystic Dream. <laughs> Sorry for the distraction. I, I, <laughs> didn't, hear it. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. And then I can hear the song. Bye. Terrible. So we're going to open it to questions, but then we'll take a little while to develop. So why don't we're going to start with. Um, asking a couple of questions of you, okay? First of all, Angela, what was the inspiration for the piece you read tonight? Um, well, the, the book originally I thought would be um, a historical novel sort of set between Australia and Ireland, and then I realized that I sucked at writing historical novels. Um, and so all my usual sort of fairy tale and, um, and folk tale stuff started to come through um, when I did a rewrite on it. Um, and I'm much happier with it. And I wanted to do something that had a lot of embedded stories mm -hmm. in the main story. So that was why I chose that piece, because it has that first mm -hmm. um, main family tale in there. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, so if you want to ask a question, um, you're watching it live, just uh, type it in the Google, uh, the YouTube live chat on the right. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see it repeat it. Yeah, we'll repeat it on the air. Uh, I have a question for Rebecca. Um, so, what books are you reading and loving uh, by other authors right now? Oh, yeah. So, uh, let's see. Just recently, I read uh, Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark, mm -hmm. uh, which is absolutely awesome. It's like a little um, murder mystery in a steampunk Cairo. Uh, which was very, very cool. Uh, and of course he has ring shout out. I didn't read that, but my mother has read it and she loved it. So. Oh, I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll get to it. It's on my list, <laughs> my TBR, uh, mm -hmm. but I love that one. Uh, and then I'm reading um, Son of the Storm uh, by Suyi, and I'm gonna say his last name incorrectly, but I believe it is Onyebuche, and it's, uh, it's great. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we have a question from uh, Misty 306 for Rebecca. Um, Misty 306 asks, uh, you said you finished book two in Between Earth and Sky. Could you tell us anything about it? <laughs> <laughs> Misty. Um, yes, uh, let's see. Um, uh, it is so. Uh, Black Sun is the first book in the Between Earth and Sky series. The second book, the title has not been officially announced, but um, it, it, it's sort of out there in the ether. Uh, and so maybe, well, maybe I should because we're live on YouTube, huh? So, uh, but it's coming, and uh, we'll have more of some of your favorite characters. There's a new character who's a point of view character or someone who, who was in the old book who's now a point of view character. Uh, and we're going to go all kinds of new places uh, and new cities that you haven't been to yet. Cool. Angela, Angela, have you been, what have you been reading lately? If, if, I recently started uh, Cynthia Paleo's Children of Chicago which is sort of a mix of crime, fairy tale, you know, hard-boiled kind of thing. So I'm only a few pages into it, but I'm enjoying that one. Um, and as my reward for when I finally finish the next novel, I've got a pile of um, Francis Hardinge books, like The Lie Tree. Um, but I can't start them yet because there's three of them and I know I will just want to keep going with them and I won't want to do anything else. So <laughs> I need to, to get to a point where there's a bit of free time. So yes. So that's what I'm I'm and rereading I'm always rereading Hellboy graphic novels. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Uh we have a an, another question from Misty three oh six. This one is for Angela. Uh I know it's too soon, but will you continue <laughs> writing historical fantasy stories? Um Failed, failed historical novels. Um, <laughs> we'll continue writing gothic fantasies. Um, the next one I'm working on is called Morewood, and it's sort of it's set in that same sourdough fairy tale gothic world. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm I will be finishing that on the 31st of May if my editor happens to be listening. Yes, I promise to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've got another one called The Briar Book of the Dead that I'm a third of the way through that I would like to finish, and after that I don't really know what I'll be doing. I need a little nap. Sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so um, you sort of mentioned this, or this question is for Rebecca, you sort of mentioned this earlier, but uh, what, what, are you work, what are you working on next? It sounds like a lot, but. Uh, yeah. Um, well, so I am doing a uh, series run of a Marvel comic. Uh, which I can't tell you any more about than that, but I'm really excited about that. That's pretty cool. Awesome. I'm also in a TV writer's room. Uh, and so that's taking up a lot of my time. Uh, and then novel wise, I am hoping uh, to write the third book in the Between Earth and Sky series uh, and see where that goes. That sounds like a lot. That's a, I mean, um, <laughs> you find that it's easy to juggle between like well, different genre, different, different media, media right? Because yeah, you're doing like TV and then comic and then fiction. Like, do you do you find that 
it's difficult to, to switch or are you? Or a relief. Yeah. <laughs> it's a relief. <laughs> yes, whoever said that, that's, yeah, I like to, I like to have a number of different projects going. So if I sort of stall out on one, I could switch gears and start working on a different one. And mm -hmm. often that gives me time to process, you know, sort of the first one and then my brain catch up. So I'm never idle and I, I never get writer's block because I can just sort of shift gears. Cool. Right. Matt, I assume you do that too. Yeah, it's a bit of a palette, you know, just yeah. a few things going and then one thing's not working so you can put it in the corner and um, and let it percolate for a while. And then I, I don't know about you, Rebecca, but I'll sort of wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, I fixed that plot problem because it's just been sitting there in the back of the, you know, in the back brain working itself out without me sort of peeking at it. Um, Isn't it kind of amazing how that happens sometimes? It's like you're totally stuck with something and then you, I don't know, take a shower, have a cup of coffee, walk around the block and you come back and you're like, oh, it's obvious what the problem was. I yeah. find it happens with like, cause I, my day job, I'm a programmer and like I find it with code too. Like I'm like really stuck. And then I like, I come back 20 minutes later and I'm like, oh yeah. It's like, that. it was simple, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, even okay. This is not exactly the same thing, but I've been reading a friend's novel manuscript um, that he wanted. You know, she asked me for recommend. You know, for suggestions and stuff. And initially, I mean, I may take notes as I'm reading something, but they're usually just technical notes. Oh, typo here. This blah blah blah. But it takes me a while to digest. I need her feedback to give me to give her my feedback. When she called me, I mean, I said, I, she said, what, you sound like you don't love it. What? And I'm thinking, well, like, you know, you're right. I mean, I love this and I love that and I love that element. And I said, well, what do you think is wrong? And so I kind of like, you know, she spurred me to say, okay, first of all, it needs to be sped up. I mean, it's, you know, it's just too slow. And back and forth, the back and forth helped us spur each other on and say, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, that's right. I should do that. And so, I mean, it's slightly, you know, the edit, that process is different, but it's like you go away for a minute. And I said, well, let me think about it. You know, and like for two days, I, like I didn't think about it. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I know it's wrong. Or I know what I, what I think you might want to do. And, you know, it's going back and forth and, forget, and forgetting about it. You know, it's like you have to just go away from whatever you're working on. And sometimes it'll just, hopefully it'll just come to you. Yeah. But also, like I, you know, I find with a lot of a lot of students, they sort of think, well, this is a solitary pursuit. I can't talk to anyone else about it. But you actually just need to do have a little bit of a talk. Well, sometime. you have to find the right people to talk to, though. Yeah, it needs to be the right one. It needs to be, you know, probably not your mum. You know, <laughs> it just needs to be um, someone that can sort of sit and just plot noodle with you and throw ideas back and forth and sort of say. And then they'll, they'll, you know, finish, you know, we'll finish the Skype and they go, oh, didn't know it worked like that. You know, I said, well, sometimes it does. Sometimes you know, it's interestingly, I, I throw around plot with my 13-year-old daughter <laughs> because she's not, like, everything is new to her. Like, she's really not familiar with tropes, you know, maybe a few now, but, like, she's not jaded. So her mind works in, like, unusual ways. Like, she takes different pathways to solve solutions. She's a huge anime fan too. So especially for my superhero work, she's very much like, what if, what if? 
you know, lasers. And it's so helpful <laughs> uh, because she, her mind just totally, you know, works like a child's yeah. mind. Really good. <laughs> so you can go the other way too. When did, I'd like to ask each of you, when did you, at what age did you realize you wanted to write and were a writer? What, what was that a separation for when you wanted to write and when you decided you were going to do it as your calling? I guess yeah. first and then Rebecca. I um, I always wanted to do it, but I didn't think I could because you know it was it was mysterious, you know. And the writers were up here. Little did I know they're actually down in the gutter with a glass of whiskey, going, "No one lost me." But um, but it took a really long time to to sort of work out that I I could tell stories and I wanted to tell stories. And I probably started scribbling when I was in my teens, but didn't really make a hard decision until I was thirty seven. Um, and that's when I went, okay, I need to, if I want to do this, I need to learn how to do this. And I did some study. Um, and then I started scribbling and people foolishly published it, which just encouraged me to keep going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, 16 years later, um, still doing it. And I, I, I love it. I constantly love it. It's the only job I've had that I haven't gotten bored with after two years. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's probably a good thing because I really am not fit to go back into an office with people now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Rebecca? Oh, gosh. You know, I I wrote an award-winning poem when I was in third grade, and I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wrote for myself. I, I mean, all through junior high and, you know, seventh and eighth grade, I was writing these, like, cheap Belgaria knockoffs. I can't even say they were Tolkien knockoffs. They were just, like, Belgaria. We were, you know, farm boys with wizards on quests. Um, and, uh, you know, doing that just for pleasure all my life. And only when I was a mother, you know, stuck in a boring job as an attorney, uh, did I start writing again? And, and that was really just to save my sanity. I was having a little midlife issue, I think. Uh, and so I started writing my first novel uh, purely for myself, uh, you know, staying up 10 to 12 at night after my daughter, or 10 to 2 at night after my daughter had gone to bed, uh, writing the story that I wanted to read. Uh, and then I joined um, a little writing group, a local writing group through NaNoWriMo, and the women in that group encouraged me to query the, story, the novel. And at first I was like, you got to be kidding. Nobody wants to read this. <laughs> this is just for me, right? Uh, but it turned out people did want to read it. Uh, and it got nominated for a Hugo and a Nebula and all sorts of good stuff. So uh, I came to it very late. I had never seen a Black or Native woman uh, writing in science fiction and fantasy. I didn't know we could write genre. Um, I didn't know that that was sort of, quote, unquote, allowed. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Rebecca, you were an attorney? First? Yes, I was an attorney and a computer programmer, Matt, for 10 years. So. I'm sorry, pardon? And I was a computer programmer for 10 years, mm -hmm. and then I was an attorney for 10 years. What did you, you program? Melinda Snodgrass was an attorney and hated it and left. I'm sure there are other writers who have, you know. Who There's a ton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what kind Ken of Liu was an attorney, right? Now he's a programmer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Kate... Uh, Ted Chang, right? Isn't Ted Chang? Yeah, lots of people. Yeah, Ted I was a database, database guy, Matt, or a girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we have a question here from Anna Morton. Um, 
we'll jump over to uh, Angela for this one. Angela, and then uh, Rebecca, you can answer too. When you write, do you imagine yourselves in the stories alongside the characters or above the stories, like an all-powerful narrator? Um, I, I think I am basically in the story as the, the protagonist. That's one of those things that I um, enjoy most about writing is that I can do whatever I want within the space of the story and I don't have to feel guilty or worry about, you know, the police at the door or anything like that. So every one of my characters, whether they're, you know, good, bad, in between, um, I try to put myself right in their, in their headspace, which is one of the reasons I write a lot in first person. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm in the story and it just helps me sort of, you know, it's kind of like a mental virtual reality for me. Yeah. Yeah. What For about me, you? I am the scribe. I I have a very visual imagination, so I imagine the scene sort of playing out. I see my characters. I see them going through, you know, sort of their lives and everything. And I'm just there to sort of take notes, like to sort of write it down. Uh, so yeah, and then sometimes, I mean, for emotional scenes, I try to get in there and get in their heads and go, "What would I do?" But most of the time, I'm just, you know, writing it down. I mean, one one question that I'm I'm always curious about to ask other writers is like, what is your like writing schedule like? Like, I don't like to use the word process because it, it just sounds like to me like so technical and I don't know, like like an algorithm or something. Like, like I mean, do you have a routine? I guess is is my question, or or do you just you know write whenever you can find the time? Or how does it work? Either um, first. I'm I'm a sort of full time writer, and uh, I'm sort of also juggling teaching, um, which is online. And I don't think I ever want to go back into a classroom again. Uh, <laughs> quietly, thanks pandemic. Um, but I, you know, so I, I I know I have deadlines, so I'm I'm working on those. But I've also got to, um, you know, fit everything in. I don't write creatively every day because I just I can't. Um, I need to either refill the well or I'm doing an edit for someone. Um, you know, I did a novel edit for someone yesterday and finished that off and then wrote up the report. And by the end of that, there's not much brain left. Um, so you need to have a bit of a nap. Um, so it just depends. Like I, I sort of move depending on my deadlines. Um, and sometimes I do find myself with that deadline. I go, yay, I can write, you know, that thing that I put the note, you know, the post-it note on the base of the computer, um, that one sentence that I think I can build the whole story from, um, that's, you know, that's what I'll do. How about you, Rebecca? Mm, it depends. If I'm actively on a deadline, I have weekly word counts. So I don't do daily word count, but I know I have to hit 10,000 words this week. So however that breaks down is what I do. Uh, and then I give myself little stickers on my calendar. <laughs> Or when I hit word counts, keep myself motivated. Um, but mostly I write at night when it's quiet and there's no emails and there's no kids or husbands asking you for things. Uh, and so that's probably when I get the most work done. Matt, what about you? Uh, mornings. It's like first thing in the morning. I, I sit down and I'll have like tea or coffee and then um, 
usually read or or look at something interesting like uh, i have a bunch of youtube subscriptions that'll just get like my brain interested about in something and then once the caffeine kicks in i'll write for like three four hours and then do my day job stuff in the afternoon because I, I i'm self-employed so i can most of the time work whenever i want um but um yeah i i, I tried writing at night for a while but um I think my brain is freshest in the morning. Mm. Yeah, not a morning, not a morning person. So I'm just, um, I used to stay up really late. 9.30 every morning. I used to, I usually stay up late and I used to just say, I have to get eight hours sleep. Whatever time I go to bed, I have to have eight hours after that. And I would get up at, go to bed at two and get up at 10. And since, I don't know when I started, but I, feel, I have to, I want to get up. I feel like I'm wasting the whole day. Not that I have not anything specific to do necessarily, but it's like, okay, I'm getting up at 9.30. I'm going to go to, I'm forcing myself to get into bed at one so that by 1.30 I can fall asleep. And I've been trying, and I've been pretty good at keeping that. And I just feel revitalized by getting up at 9.30 in the morning every day. Yeah. I, you know, I, I used to stay up really late. I'd go to bed like, I mean, it depends on your definition of late, but I would go to bed like 2, 2.30. Uh, but my, my wife, uh, you know, she gets up early. She works. Um, she's uh, an educator. And she uh, is up very early. So these days I get up pretty early. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's just – it just depends. But I think my natural cycle would probably be to stay up. So is my flapping fan. Um <laughs> Gay has a good question. Rebecca, are the myths you're using for your stories from Southwest Native tribes? Um, traditional stories, we like to call them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, the one um, that is referenced in um, a brief lesson in Native American astronomy is a Pueblo story. Uh, my mother's family is Pueblo. Uh, and then I guess you're talking about uh, my Sixth World series. Uh, those are inspired by the traditional stories of the Navajo. And I'm a Navajo in-law. I lived on the Navajo reservation for quite a while. Still do. I mean, still visit. I don't live there anymore, but yes. Those are my peeps. Excuse me. I'm sorry. It's like it's suddenly warm again. It's really, and I, I dare not put on my air conditioner the first time because I'm afraid it'll blow up. I haven't used it yet in my new apartment. Well, I have it's my new apartment, and I haven't. I moved in the winter. I don't have a fan, but I have a baby Yoda. So. Oh, <laughs> everybody starts fanning. I tried to say. There you go. Some more questions, Pete. Yeah, any more questions? Get them in now. Um, do you? Uh, do either of you have questions for each other? I was really interested, Rebecca, you know, when you, how did you find it transitioning to doing writer's rooms from what you'd been doing previously? Oh, yeah. So how did I start writing for TV? Yeah. Um, they called me. <laughs> so I know I'm pretty lucky. So, yeah, I don't really have a good story with that. Uh, they reached out to my agent and said, do you think Rebecca would be interested in a writer's room? Uh, and it's actually a really cool uh, team. Um, my first writer's room was for FX uh, for a uh, sci-fi show that will hopefully you will get to see on FX at some time. Are you allowed uh, to say what it is? No, I'm not allowed to say what it is. 
I know it's a bummer. It's new. It's something you haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that just worked out. And then, you know, once you've sort of uh, broken in, it's a little bit easier to, to get your next job. And uh, so it's just sort of gone from there. Yeah. Have you, have you done graphic novel at all? What, have yes. Have I a comic? I don't know if I call it mine. Well, I don't know how you define the difference anymore, you know, but I meant comic or graphic novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have a question here from uh, Misty for Rebecca that I, I missed. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, Rebecca, will you return to the sixth world after Between Earth and Sky? Ah, uh, so that is not quite my call. That's going to be up to the publisher uh, and the muses. Uh, so we'll see. I can't give a definitive answer on that one. Mm -hmm. um, this is a question from Joseph Kennedy wants to know uh, favorite comics. Um, but this could be for either of you, Angela, or Rebecca, you want to tell us? Um, I know, Angela, you said that you were uh, rereading uh, Hellboy, right? Yeah, Hellboy, but also um, Monstrous by Marjorie mm -hmm. Lou with Fana Takata's amazing artwork. Um, and Kelly Sue um Pretty deadly um, with artwork by Emma Rios, uh, the ones that I'm mostly sort of waiting for, you know, just waiting for them to come out and then rereading while I wait. Um, and Harrow County by Cullen Bunn is another really good one that I've enjoyed. Yeah. You want to write them? I would love to write them and there's some stuff being negotiated at the moment, but I can't say anything of until course, yeah. Yeah. are agreed on. But well, not to be yeah. a downer here, but um, about, 50, about 20 years ago, um, comic various comic book companies kept approach, started approaching genre writers and wanted, you know, like KW Jeter and I don't remember who else, but everybody, you know, Maybe Pat Cadigan. I don't know if Pat Cadigan was approached, but various writers, in, you know, who are doing really good work in their field, and asked them to start doing comics. And then they killed them like after five issues. I mean, this was like invariable. <laughs> and you know, it's like, yes, we really love your work, but oh well, you 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 know, your comic didn't sell well enough, even though it sold fifty hundred thousand copies. That's not enough. And bye bye. So I wonder if the system is any different now. That not that you know, I guess, but. Yeah. It was interesting because well, comics can do a five, maybe a five issue run, uh, mm -hmm. and then maybe you're done. Like I don't know that I want to, like uh, I don't know that I want to write multiple, you know, runs of the comic. So maybe right. that's a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. Yeah. it's okay yeah. to let it in. Kind of like Watchmen was a perfect like HBO show. It doesn't need a second season, right? Just mm -hmm. let it yeah. sit. I just remember Liz Hand did a comic. I I can't remember the name, but I almost remembered Anima. I don't know, but Liz Hand did one. You know, I mean, oh, they brought in all these people. Probably, it was probably, I'm guessing it was DC Vertigo when it was around. Vertigo was terrific. I used to read it myself, yeah. a lot of other stuff. Yeah, no, they did a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Lucius did one, yeah. Rebecca, yeah. did you uh, have favorite comics that you wanted to? Oh, uh, well, you know, actually, right now I'm reading um, the uh, uh, Electra's run on Daredevil, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is really good. I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm kind of old school. Like, I liked a lot of, I like, I love Hellblazer and Preacher. And, you know, that's sort of how I got my uh, fan start in the comic mm -hmm. book world. Uh, but now, because of work, I read a lot of Marvel. 
Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really yeah. like Paper Girls. I don't know if you read that one. It's by uh, Brian K. Vaughn. He did. Um, oh, he did Saga and Why the Last Man and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a Saga. Bunch of, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Saga is yeah, really good. Yeah, uh, Paper it's Girls. It's like a bunch Saga. of Paper Girls in the '80s, and they discover an interdimensional portal, and then I won't tell you anything else. But it's it's <laughs> very good. Um, I saw another question here. Okay, yeah. Um, this is another one from Misty. Uh, asks, question for both of you. Which books that are coming out in 2021 should we keep an eye out for? Anything you're really looking forward to? I will tell you my favorite. I'll go first. Sure. <laughs> so I'm excited about it. Uh, she Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. I absolutely loved. Uh, and you'll see like the comps are like uh, Mulan and Song of Achilles. That's not, don't buy that. <laughs> it's way, way better, way better than Mulan. Uh, and I always say that Patroclus could never. So read that one. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, my head is so far up my own fundament <laughs> trying to finish this novel. I have no idea what's coming out. So I just honestly don't know. I'm, reading, um, I'm currently reading, um, uh, is it my, my love is, my heart is a chainsaw. Oh, oh yes, yeah. Yeah. I keep getting mixed up. I mean, my heart is a chainsaw. My love is a. I think it's my heart by Stephen Graham Jones, yeah. and it's really good. I mean, it's another slasher novel. It's terrific. You know, I'm about halfway through, and it's. Uh, I'm curious to see where it goes. It's. It's an homage to every, to the any obsessive slasher fan, which I'm not. So I mean, you know, in a way, I feel kind of left out. I mean, but you can get what's going on; it doesn't matter. But it's for someone who's actually seen everything. I'm sure it's a real kick. So yeah, I highly recommend that. I can't remember when it's coming out exactly. I have the arc. So. Misty says Paper Girls is getting an adaptation, so that's cool. Oh, cool. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Um. Yeah, a lot, a lot of um, fiction writers, uh, genre fiction, spec fic, have, have been doing comics like Sal Dean uh, oh, and N.K. Jemison, Shane McGuire. McGuire. Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty cool, exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other questions uh, coming in? Um, so any cons, conventions in the future for either of you? I know we were talking about- In real life or in person or virtual? <laughs> either one. I mean, I was thinking uh, about it in person, but yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I will probably, uh, we haven't quite signed the papers yet, but uh, I will most likely be at New York Comic Con in October in nice. real life. Um, I may be there, I'm not sure. Oh, excellent. There in person, even, well, if you have time, maybe we can get together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be there for the stretch. And then uh, hopefully uh, Worldcon, uh, I'm up for a Hugo. And I didn't get to go last time I was up for a Hugo. So I would love to to go and experience DC in December. Yeah, I'm going to that for sure. And I'm going World Fantasy in Montreal. We're all hoping Montreal is open. Yeah. I was hoping, I wanted to go to the, um, the Swan, uh, <clears throat> the NatCon in Canberra. <clears throat> um, in the fall, but that's not happening. I mean, I, for me, it's not happening. Are they having it in person, Angela? Do you know? In in Canberra? 
Uh, yeah, they will be doing it in, you know. Yeah, I was hoping to go months. there, but I don't think they'll be open for me and it was too much travel and have too many mm -hmm. other people. It just didn't work out. Yeah. No, it'll be on. Um, I'm doing Supernova in Sydney in June, apparently. Um, and <laughs> virtually I am doing uh, the Chimera Festival in Edinburgh. Um, Ooh, in nice. Also in June. So, yeah. Um, Wait, you're going to be traveling a lot in person in Australia? Uh, I'll, I'll be doing I'll be doing some things in Australia. I mean, they're letting you travel from not I won't from be state to state, province yeah. to province. At, at the moment, we we can. I don't yeah. think I don't think anything's closed at the moment, but it's you know it's a movable feast. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think at the moment we're clear, and where the vaccination program is you know, kind of a bit of a joke, but I got my first one the other day, so my arm's a bit dead. Um, but, yeah, we are getting there very slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, I don't see any more questions coming in. Um, so unless either of you have any questions for each other or us or anyone, um, we might uh, wrap it up. So yeah. um, It's been a pleasure having you. Yes. Yeah, really yeah cool. very lovely. This was Lovely really great. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks. Thanks for Thank joining us for before, so that was great. <laughs> What's that? I said I'd met you guys before, but I hadn't met Rebecca before. So yeah, I nice. met Rebecca in Santa Fe or Albuquerque. I forget. Santa Fe. Yeah, yeah, you were here for Georgia's yeah. Theater. Yes. Yeah, I hope to get back there at some point. Absolutely, Matt too. Yes, mm -hmm. that was a good time there. Um, so. <laughs> Um, just wanted to thank you uh, both. Um, you you were both uh, fantastic. Um, really enjoyed the readings. Uh, so you've been uh, listening to Rebecca Rowanhorse and Angela Slater um, for Fantastic Fiction at KGB, mm -hmm. our 15th uh, virtual uh, reading. So thank you very much. Um, so um, we're going to end the live broadcast, but... Um, if you guys want to just uh, hang on uh, in the quote green room for afterwards, we'll do a little debrief. But uh, thanks to thanks to everybody who uh, watched live and and tuned in after, and and thanks for everyone who donated, and just thanks thanks for everyone uh, supporting the fantastic fiction of KGB series um, through the pandemic, before, after, all that good stuff. So we appreciate you guys, and uh, really looking forward to uh, seeing seeing you all in person. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to end the broadcast. So uh, bye. Right. We'll see you next month. See you next month.